0: I think when people make agreements with partners that they end up not being able to keep, often it's not a very obvious thing right in the front of their brain right away. Of
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Something I can't do, and so I'm just going to lie and say that I can't. I think for some people it is. But for many people, I think they do feel positive. Like, oh yeah, I can agree to that. I can agree to... I'm not gonna have sex with my other partner for the next month or so. I can totally agree with that. That makes sense. (laughs) And then it's like, whoa. (laughs) Right, yes. And then they're actually in the situation like, oh gosh, well, actually, uh, I shouldn't agree to that. That's really hard for me to maintain. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll be easier for me to just like break that agreement, but not be honest
1: about it. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about cheating in relationships, in particular in non-monogamous relationships as well as monogamous ones. There has been some debate on this topic recently, and the question's been posed of whether it's even possible to cheat in non-monogamous relationships. So today, we're doing a deep dive into what it means to cheat, why people do it, how we as a society define cheating in both traditional and non-traditional relationships, and some actionable takeaways to think about if you've cheated or been cheated on.
2: This topic is indeed a doozy. And it's something that we have spent time on, but it's been a while, I think, since we've devoted a whole episode to cheating and non-monogamy or cheating in general. A lot of people come to non-monogamy by way of cheating But today, we're more just going to talk about cheating in non-monogamy and if it's possible. And this topic came up just because our research assistant for this episode, Kiana, notified us of this article that was kind of making the rounds in various non-monogamous communities. And it's called, I am a proud homewrecker, ask me anything. It's this really fascinating read on Medium where the author essentially says that cheating is a really important political action and that they think... Helping my friends cheat in their relationships is an important way to support their autonomy. So we all kind of took a look at this article, have some thoughts about it. Can we maybe give like a brief idea, <laughs> lens, <laughs> idea bubble of what what it is that you thought of this this article? Go for it, Dedicar.
0: Well, first of all, if you're out there listening and immediately having your feathers ruffled up, if you just go read this article, probably the the outrage question that you have is answered. I wouldn't say this necessarily answered satisfactorily. <laughs> you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I think that rather than being a very well thought out kind of treatise on what motivates this person and their values behind encouraging their friends to cheat, it's a little bit more kind of I mean, automatically defensive, right? Which is understandable. You know, I think this is the kind of thing that would stir up a lot of ire. At the same time, of course, the place that I go to is who decided this person was the savior. <laughs> Of their friends Mm. are the savior of making sure that their friends can access autonomy, you know, and I think that with a lot of causes, people can have really intense conviction to the point where it seems disruptive. I can think of a lot of examples like, you know, there's certain kind of, I think, extreme animal rights activists where it's like, I'm going to release animals from the zoo, You know, Mm -hmm. And some people can be very convicted to feel like that is the right thing. And you do something destructive in order to actually get something fixed. Sure, That also falls in, I think, a similar line of thinking of, I need to burn down this abortion clinic because that's the only way that this is going to get fixed. And this is the only way that's going to send the message. Maybe it's reductive for me to think about that in the same way. And I'm sure a lot of people out there would be upset that I'm making that kind of equivalency. And I wouldn't call them necessarily an equivalent, but it does seem to share this same seed of... I'm so convicted by my beliefs around this and have this sense of like, I'm the one who needs to do something about it to the extent that I'm okay causing some destruction, Hmm. essentially. And that can open up a whole other can of worms of how effective is it to burn the system down versus not. Sure. How about you,
1: Jess? Yeah, same kind of thing. It's just that I see this come up sometimes with talking about your sexual identity or your gender identity or the way you do relationships as being a political action, I think makes a lot of sense and can be a very validating thing to realize and to kind of understand like, yeah, you know, just by being me and being my true self, that is a political action and it's something I can be proud of and also kind of can help people to understand why there might be resistance to it and to kind of find strength in that. At the same time, kind of like Dedeker I think, was getting at thinking of it that way is also a really good way to jump quickly to the ends justifying the means hmm. or that or that the ends justify any means, not just the best means or good means, but just literally anything I do in the name of this is okay, and you know to give more examples of what Dedeker's talking about, we have to remember that whatever your sort of political ideology is, you know can lead to some stuff that's destructive and also doesn't help your cause. And I, I think this person falls into that category here. Like I don't think they're actually helping their cause, and I actually would argue they're not even helping their friends actually achieve autonomy in this way.
2: Yeah, and it, they it had some strange things to talk about when it came to discussing ethical non-monogamy, which I think we'll get more into in the bonus episode, but I I, I think it was a good jumping-off point into this episode to ask the question like if you are in a relationship where two people are open about, you know, hopefully open about seeing other people, sleeping with other people, having sexual relationships with other people, can cheating even exist? And we asked our patrons these questions. We did a lot of research on it. So we're going to get into all of that. But it, there there are a lot of differing opinions out there regarding that specifically. If non-monogamy means yes cheating or no cheating. So we're going to talk about that and continue on. But I do encourage people to look up this Medium article because it's fascinating. It's an interesting read and and is a good kind of jumping-off point for your own mind to think about these questions. So.
0: So, firstly, let's talk about how common is cheating just in general. There's a lot of different statistics out there that discuss how common cheating is. If we take a broad view and try to assimilate and look at the findings of all these different studies and surveys, generally we can make the assumption that cheating is pretty darn common, more common than uncommon. So we specifically looked at an article in Psychology Today from 2010 called How Often Do People Really Cheat on Each Other? Written by Bella DePaolo, PhD. The article profiles a national survey about the extent to which American attitudes on infidelity and cheating have changed basically between 1973 and 2008, quite a large gap. I imagine there's probably even more changes because now at this point, 2010 is starting to look further and further away. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot that's happened in the past 11 years or so. So I'm sure that this is probably maybe even a little bit out of date. But at least as of 2010, the percent of Americans who say that cheating is always wrong has increased from around 65% in 1973 to now about 81%, at least as of 2008.
2: That's really but, interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, between 1991 and 2008, somewhere between about 20 to 25% of men admit to having cheated on their wives. Uh, th- this is also another number, specifically with men, where I've seen it really, really range from as little yes. as 15% to as high as like 50%. Yeah.
1: Right. And then in that same range from 91 to 2008, rates of admitted infidelity for women were between 10 and 15% compared to that 10 to 25. And again, this is another one of those things where I've seen other numbers that have a much bigger range on this. Among people 65 and older, women were only half as likely as men to say that they cheated. And among people 18 to 24, so younger people, women were 81% as likely as men to admit to infidelity. So basically, just the younger women are more likely to admit it than older women seems to be the takeaway of that. And of people who admitted to cheating, 64% say that infidelity is always wrong, even if they have done it. And of those who claim to have always been faithful, of them say cheating's always wrong. So I guess just, I I guess believing cheating's always wrong makes you maybe a little less likely to cheat, but apparently not. Well,
0: that's kind of making an inference that's not necessarily there.
1: That's true. Sure, yeah. Fascinating.
2: And yeah, I'm it's just also interesting that in 1973, 65% of people said that it was always wrong. And then in 2008, 81% of people said, and I wonder like how the cultural narratives have shifted that sentiment to people being more like, Oh, it's always wrong now later on in, in the world's history than it was back in the day when probably a lot of people were cheating and it was just kind of brushed off perhaps.
1: I I think that's a great question because Mm -hmm. I think it, it, goes to not only that question, but also, I think we often kind of think of older generations as kind of being more traditional and more moralistic than younger generations. Yeah. And that's not always true. And I actually think mean, this is sort of an example of that, that, that I actually feel like I've seen some other studies that show that, that kind of that... Um, Similar sentiment. Moralism, black and white thinking actually kind of increased during, you know, from kind of middle of the century to later in the, in the 20th century. I also want to come back to that thing about if thinking that cheating is always wrong makes you less likely to is one possible interpretation. And then the other one is having cheated makes you less likely to think that it's always wrong. <laughs> it's like another way you could look at the sure, same numbers. And sure, All of those are guesses. And that's relevant because that's going to come up later in this episode. Yeah. I'm- how you interpret data.
2: So there are a lot of different articles out there with these not concrete numbers, because I wanted to find something more concrete. And it's just sort of impossible, because whatever study you're going to be looking at, people are going to be saying different things. And the method by which the study is conducted also makes a difference in terms of who says that they have cheated or not. For example, we looked at this article from the New York Times in 2008. It was titled Love, Sex, and the Changing Landscape of Infidelity by Tara Parker Pope. And this is from the article. This is a takeaway that shows what I just said, that the method by which researchers collect data, it can determine the results. So in the article, it said... In the Journal of Family Psychology, for example, researchers from the University of Colorado and Texas, a surveyed 4,884 married women using face-to-face interviews and anonymous computer questionnaires. In the interviews, only 1% of women said that they had been unfaithful to their husbands in the past year. And on the computer questionnaire, more than 6% did.
1: So... It's a pretty big margin of difference Mm -hmm. there, yeah.
2: Yeah, somehow saying it out loud is like, ugh, I don't want to do that.
0: What we can see with these studies is that there have been demographic changes in terms of who is cheating and how often. So, you know, for example, women are just cheating more often than they used to. Again, it's not clear if this is actually cheating more often or just more likely to lie about it or be honest about it, perhaps, or more likely to admit it. And as our researcher pointed out, you know that is a good argument to make because if we look socially just at the fact that there's for a very long time been a lot, lot higher consequences for women who cheat than there have been for men who cheat, that it's much more likely that either a woman would be less likely, again, talking in a traditional sense, that would be perhaps less likely to choose to cheat or at least choose not to admit it and take that risk.
1: Right. And that's the thing is even with that argument, it still could be either thing right even if you're like it is because there's a higher social cost if it's found out does that mean you're less likely to do it or just less likely to admit it or both Mm -hmm. you know so it's it still doesn't quite get us to the answer
0: and i think there's many reasons why it's probably so difficult to actually pin down a number i think not the least of which is the fact that when you if you just ask someone the question have you ever been unfaithful or have you ever cheated that does leave it up to the person's interpretation of what exactly. that actually is. Yes. And then that further is left up to their own cognitive biases about how they've kind of decided to square it, you know? Yeah, like, well,
2: I wasn't, I wasn't unfaithful. Yeah, but it was
0: like the first three months of the relationship. Like maybe yeah. we, I was unclear, you know, and I did, you know, mm-hmm. so, so that can all really get lost in the weeds. And I think that's why we end up with these numbers that are such a wide range.
1: And that's a perfect segue into our next section here, which is talking about what is cheating. (laughs) So we're going to start off with this question of, you know, what does cheating look like in monogamous, like traditional monogamous relationships? And it is hard to define. And like you brought up, there's all these sort of caveats of like, well, I don't know if we were totally exclusive yet, or like we hadn't quite hit this point, or... Or the other one is, oh, well, this wasn't cheating because it was just like an emotional thing. Or, oh, no, that is emotional infidelity, and that's a type of cheating. Or like, sexual infidelity is fine, but emotional's not. Or, you know, there's like all these little caveats and different opinions people have. So it is not always one uniform definition of what cheating means. Kind of like there's not one definition of what monogamy means, even if people think there might just be one definition.
2: <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, there was an article titled Infidelity from Psychology Today, and it kind of defines a couple different things regarding cheating. So they define infidelity as the breaking of a promise to remain faithful to a romantic partner, whether that promise was part of marriage vows, a privately uttered agreement between lovers, or an unspoken assumption.
0: That seems like wrong. Really privately, yeah. privately uttered <laughs> agreement between lovers. It's so romance novel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so, like, what? <laughs> like very romantic and breathy up against the wall. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and utter, utter some sweet, sweet agreements in your ear. Amazing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the article also uses the term micro-cheating and says uh, that it
1: i know i know i forgot about that i remember coming across that years ago and i completely blocked it out of my mind <laughs> yeah i know
2: it's <laughs> yeah, boy okay it says it refers to acts that fall short of most definitions of infidelity but may still disturb a partner such as flirting with an attractive neighbor or coworker but with no intention of straying okay, okay. Yeah, and then yeah. And then finally, the article goes on to mention that some people really insist that like watching porn can be a form of cheating. And so it basically says that partners should be clear and open about the respective definition of cheating. Yes, absolutely. People should do that. But ugh, I don't know, porn, come on, like everybody does it.
0: I, I th- That's up to interpretation for people. That's I don't, don't want to crap on people if they feel like this is something that I want to put within the realm of being something exclusive with my partner. If two adults are consenting and agreeing to that and that's actually working for them. Great. Yeah. I wouldn't agree to it, but, but I don't want to necessarily throw people in the garbage over that. Sure. Or throw our cognitive biases all over this show, even
2: though that happens
1: sometimes. But yes. Yeah. However, it is one of those things that it's very different if that's something that both of these people have talked about their values and have agreed upon versus Mm -hmm. it's something you've just sort of taken for granted as like, yeah, this is just truth, but this hasn't been explicitly talked about or that your partner has been like, yeah, sure. I'll just be more secret about it. You know, like... To go sort of a different direction on defining this, there was a 2016 article called Cheating and Consensual Non-Monogamy by Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. And in this part, she's talking about specifically in monogamous relationships that cheating occurs when two people have agreed to be sexually exclusive and one or more of them has clandestine sex outside the relationship while pretending to be monogamous and lying to their partner with active manipulation and or omission of information.
2: I think that's much more clear, thank you, Dr. Elizabeth Schiff, than the previous (laughs) things from the Psychology (laughs) Today article. Because, yeah, Yeah. I mean, and also that is more of like sexual infidelity. But also the lying, I think it, it adds emotional aspects to that to a degree. So... It's interesting.
0: And of course, we have to at least acknowledge the really common, well worn path, very heteronormative explanation around cheating that usually goes some version, you know, is some version of, oh, well, women. Are more upset by emotional infidelity because they're, you know, it's threatening their their only support, their only lifeline, the man. <laughs> and the man <laughs> is more upset by sexual infidelity because, like, oh my goodness, the the Cockled. female that was going to carry his child and bring on, you know, birth his offspring is now being threatened and maybe carrying somebody else's offspring. And again, with a lot of evo-psych stuff around sex and around relationships, there's what they refer to in Sex of Dawn as like this big kind of great forgetting that the nuclear family and heterosexual monogamy was not always the norm. And if anything, for most of our human history, that's it's been a very, very small fraction of our human history, necessarily. Th- uh, we have to acknowledge it because the fact that it's like, this is still something people trot out today, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. As a very, very logical thing. Like, oh yeah, it makes sense. You know, men don't like cuckolding because of this and women don't like being cheated on because of that. And... As though there's never ever been a case where a man has been upset by emotional infidelity or a woman's been upset by sexual infidelity.
1: Like it's just well, not not only that, but there have actually been studies showing the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Right, that there there have been studies showing that in actual reactions to those situations, not just imagined ones that were in those original studies that made everyone go, oh, look, science says men are more upset by physical infidelity and women more upset by emotional. Subsequent studies have shown completely opposite results of that, even if people thought they would react the other way. So it's just the whole thing. It's like you know, one study gets done and before it's been confirmed, people jump all over it and go, yep, okay, this fits with the way our society is set up now. So we're just going to go with it and say, yeah, look, science proves it. Now we have an excuse. And it, it still happens all the time. I was just in a workshop a few weeks ago. Oh, where a lot of the studies they brought up in the workshop, specifically talking about the differences between men and women. I, I was like having to bite my tongue the whole time being like, Actually, that's one that's, that's kind of been disproven since then. Or like, oh, that's actually one where their methodology was bad. Or like, mm, actually, that's that's turned out to not be the case. You know, it's it's frustrating, but it still still. You happens. should have said
2: something. I would have loved that.
1: But yeah, I, I did bring it up a little bit in the comments section when we took a little break. But that um, was that wasn't the core focus of it, so I didn't want to completely derail it for that. But yes, I did try to bring it up to be like, hey, I'm kind of having a problem with some of the ways you're talking about gender here.
2: Yeah. Well, all right. So I think the question is why Why do people cheat? Because I think many of us have been in a situation where this comes up or we're around people who have cheated, it is prevalent in our society. A lot of people enter into non-monogamy from an infidelity that happens in their relationship, and then they decide, okay, we're going to open it up. So yeah, we wanted to look at some reasons why people cheat, and then also are the reasons why non-monogamous people cheat similar to those in traditional relationships. So just a little side note, we did an episode not too long ago on identity and relationships, which was episode 330. And there's an article that kind of provides an interesting tie in to some of the themes that we discussed on that episode. And then, additionally, the study in this article that we're about to talk about, there were a bunch of questions and discussions and theories posed regarding attachment styles. And we've talked about that a lot most recently with Jessica Fern, the author of Polysecure, on episode 291. So you can go back and listen to those if you want to dive deeper into those specific subjects. But right now we're going to talk about something from betrayals in emerging adulthood, a developmental perspective of infidelity.
1: Yeah, this was published in 2018 in the Journal of Sex Research. And this is a team of psychologists at the University of Tennessee, did a mixed methods study examining both written narrative as well as survey responses of 104, quote, emerging adults, which is something about that euphemism. Like
0: new and emerging businesses, new and emerging
2: startups. We talked about that in Identity a little bit, I believe, that, yeah, they're, they're essentially like in a range Where they are labeled as emerging adults, where they're like a little bit out of teenhood, but not quite into super adulthood.
0: (laughs) Like emerging out of the cocoon with your little wet, wrinkly wings that you got to move around and wiggle and get all get all dry. So then you're an actual adult.
1: There you go. Exactly. Anyway, I just think that's a very funny, funny euphemism for that sort of age range. But anyway, this was so. This is 104 emerging adults both narrative, meaning, you know, they're like writing out responses, as well as survey responses, which are more of like checking a box. And 59.6, a very precise number, roughly 60% of the participants were women. The average age of participants was 22.1. So they were young people. Right. Emerging adults, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the majority of the respondents were white, heterosexual. And the... Participants were gathered through Mechanical Turk, which is sort of a service you can use to get responses to surveys and things like that. The advantage of doing that, though, compared to the usual college study, is that you're not just studying undergraduates at your one university. You are getting a little bit of a wider sample, although, as we saw here, still white and heterosexual. And that in this case, they defined infidelity as both sexual and emotional infidelity.
0: So the researchers were curious to understand if. There's a relationship between engaging in infidelity and the development of adulthood. So as in, how is cheating related to formation of one's identity or what Mm. kind of developmental needs are met by engaging in infidelity? Now, it is just wild to me that you thought of that question in the first place. It's a good question. It's a good question. It's a good premise for a study Yeah, uh, I would be curious to actually read the study text and read their little preamble to get a sense of what even got you there, because that's a really Mm -hmm. interesting question. And they also examined the influence of attachment styles and infidelity, again, with emerging adults, as well as any gender differences. And so, basically, they found that the primary reason for infidelity was unfulfilled interdependent needs. So as in needs for intimacy, for quality time, for shared activities, for something to alleviate my boredom, as well as a need for sexual reciprocity. So 21 participants referenced unmet independence needs and then 14 participants also referenced unmet autonomy needs. So it's a mix of both, I'm not getting what I want relationally as well as I'm not getting what I want as far as my own independence. Yeah. Other people cited things like the influence of alcohol or just a desire for excitement or for novelty or attention. Of those 104 participants, there were six who did say that they desired an open or a polyamorous relationship and that was their motivation for cheating. They did find there wasn't really a significant difference between genders. And they did find that those who reported engaging in infidelity because of unmet interdependence needs, and in particular, unmet intimacy needs, were more avoidantly attached than those who didn't reference having some unmet interdependence needs, which is fascinating. And in contrast, those who reported engaging in infidelity because of unmet independence needs were more anxiously attached mm. than those who didn't report that. And that that's so, so interesting because the way that my brain works, I would think, oh, anxious-attached, you always want more of that connection. Yeah. You want more of that intimacy. That's what you're pursuing. And if you're avoidant-attached, you're always wanting more of that independence and more of that autonomy. And it's actually swippy-swapped, at least in this study, which is super interesting.
1: Yeah, I wonder what that is. That would be something interesting to have a study that looks more into that specifically. Because this is still a pretty small study of a of a fairly narrow group. So that'd be interesting to take that further. You researchers out there, feel free to take that one. Just do a wider setting. Yeah. Just put like a little thanks to me in your abstract or something. Don't even worry about it.
2: (laughs) So I just a brief quote from the article was, participating in infidelity may be another way that emerging adults attempt to meet their needs for independence and interdependence. As emerging adulthood can be trying and daunting time for young people, the decision to engage in infidelity is likely a form of relationship exploration and experimentation. So. With all of that, I'm curious because a lot of these things like trying to get more intimacy or quality time or alleviate boredom or, you know, uh, being autonomous, things like that feel like reasons why people enter into polyamorous relationships. So that, to me, makes me think that, the reasons why people who are in traditional relationships cheat versus those in non-monogamous relationships would be separate, would be different, rather.
1: That is an interesting hypothesis to do a study about. I mean, like you presented (laughs) that just like a hypothesis, right? It's like, this seems to me that this would be the case. Let's test it. Mm. Uh, Now I want to see that study. Yeah, well, (laughs) there you go. But
0: I also don't think that's necessarily exclusive because I could certainly see a lot of people who are already in an active polyamorous or open relationship still having unmet intimacy needs or autonomy needs, right? Like I I Mm -hmm. think I could see that still motivating someone deciding to go against an agreement or to lie to their partner or to do something different from what they said that they would do. Yes. Because that's also still a thing that would motivate them and i think
2: i mean again i'm just hypothesizing but potentially in hierarchical relationships that potentially would be more of a thing that might happen i don't know because i like i wrote down some reasons why i thought people in non-monogamous relationships would cheat and they included like thrill of the secrecy or forbidden nature of doing something that you shouldn't which kind of goes along with monogamy as well But like wanting newness or recognition of excitement or pleasure, maybe you're not getting that from your primary partner, for example, or searching for something that you're not getting out of your current relationship, things like that. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. Any others?
1: I I could see the thrill-seeking. I could also see it being a result of wanting to have some kind of an experience that's less complicated. Especially mm-hmm. if there's you know difficulties with communication with existing partners, or just feeling like there's so many hoops to jump through. That's like you know this would just be easier if I just kind of did this quick thing this other way. Got so, it? I'm yeah. Just brainstorming here. Sure.
0: No, I I could see that, and I think that I could re- could relate to that both personally and also based on what I see, especially with people that I work with. That yeah, sometimes there can be. <laughs> people can fall victim to like process fatigue in open relationships, you know, and so mm-hmm. if I know, yeah. oh, me wanting to date someone or hook up with someone is gonna be a bunch of emotional labor up front that I don't even really feel like doing. And so it's just gonna be easier for me to just go do the hookup and then and then we pretend like it never happened. See, yeah, I could see I could see that still being a motivating factor for people. I think hmm. something that I've seen frequently is people who agree to things in their relationship that they can't actually maintain they can't actually agree to and
1: or go contrary to their values like we talked about in the last episode
0: yeah and sometimes it's not always obvious up front i think when people make agreements with partners that they end up not being able to keep often it's not a very obvious thing right in the front of their brain right away of
1: yeah oh, yeah. This is
0: something i can't do and so i'm just gonna lie and say that i can't i think for some people it is but for many people i think they do feel positive like oh yeah i can agree to that i can agree to I'm not going to have sex with my other partner for the next month or so. I can totally agree with that. That makes sense. <laughs> and then it's like, appease. whoa. <laughs> right. Yes. And then they're actually in the situation like, oh gosh, well, actually, uh, I shouldn't have agreed to that. That's really hard for me to maintain. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be easier for me to just like break that agreement, but not be honest about yeah, it. So yeah, I could see that also being a situation.
1: So we're going to go on in the second half to talk about what cheating looks like in non-monogamous relationships in a little more depth and look at some input from other people, including our patrons. But before we go to that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this show. Please take a moment, check them out, listen to the ways you can support this show, because it really does go a long way to helping us make this show and bring this content to all y'all out there for free every week.
0: to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we are back. Now that we've talked about the traditional relationship viewpoint, let's move on to what it means to cheat in polyamory or other non-traditional relationships. So I think the recurring theme that I've noticed in most people talking about this and writing about this is, you know, lying and violating trust are two of the biggest ways that people can cheat in non-monogamy. So we're going to read a quote from an article in Vice that was published in 2019 titled, What Cheating Looks Like in a Polyamorous Relationship. Quote, Psychologist and sex and intimacy coach Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee says that in non-monogamous relationships, cheating is less about the activity and more about violating the trust you've built up in your relationship. In non-monogamy, you set down how you're going to manage relationships and what the boundaries are, she said. So when you break that, you spit in the face of the work that you've done in the relationship. It's not about sex. It's not about jealousy. It's about the lie. Which I I think makes sense. I think all three of us thinking about our experiences of what we've heard through the community of people feeling cheated on, usually it's about that, right? It's about Mm -hmm. the dishonesty. It's about the cloak and dagger. There's also Mm -hmm. another quote Not using a condom and not telling is probably the worst thing to do in a poly relationship. This is someone that they interviewed for the article called Kathy. It happened with my ex. I ended up with chlamydia. All of us did. I was absolutely fuming. Yes, you should be fuming, Kathy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Kathy You should be fuming.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Shout out real quick to our awesome patrons for helping us with this episode. Kiana posted in the Facebook group and asked, do you think cheating as such is a framework that makes sense slash is applicable within non-monogamous relationships. And there were a ton of really fabulous responses in the patron Facebook group. And most folks out there replied, yes, cheating and non-monogamy is possible. But the definition sort of varied slightly, but they all had similar themes, which included things like breaking agreements, sustained deception, or lying with intent, as someone phrased it. And also, I... There's a difference between breaking an agreement once, discussing and negotiating afterwards versus maintaining a lie with the intent of secrecy or having someone believe something that isn't true. There's like a little bit of a differentiation there. And also violation of informed consent. All of those things to our patrons were essentially were classified as cheating to them.
0: And we have this particularly interesting quote from one of our patrons,
2: Shout out to you if you know who you are from this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we don't drop in names because we're trying to protect people's privacy in the patron group, but you know who you are. Personally, I don't date people who have cheated unless they demonstrate behavior that shows they won't repeat their cheating. But this boundary to me is not a moral one, but rather because to me, a person who cheats is someone too disempowered and alienated from themselves to give meaningful consent. I don't think the term cheating is inherently useful or useless, but I think framing it as a moral issue rather than one of consent and self-empowerment isn't constructive. And that it, I, I really, really like that perspective on it. I think for myself, well, I think for most of us, we grow up with a very moralistic understanding of cheating, right? Yeah. If you cheat, you're a bad mm-hmm. person. Yeah. For myself, I really had to confront that once I started working with clients. I had to confront a lot of things once I started working with clients. I bet. Uh-huh. Because if someone's coming to me for help and they are cheating or have cheated or they are the quote the other woman or or something like that in a situation it doesn't help for me to have a moralistic sense of like oh gosh this is a bad person i can't work with them they don't deserve to have happiness or kindness or Uh, or having their emotions heard like no it doesn't make sense this is still a human being looking at it through this frame you know this may be a person who is just alienated from themselves or too Mm -hmm. disempowered Makes a lot of sense. And it does make me think about some mistakes that I've made in the past. You know, there was someone that I dated who I was their first introduction to non-monogamy. And they were very, very, very excited, very pumped for non-monogamy because they disclosed to me, wow, I've cheated in every single monogamous relationship I've been in. And so this is very exciting to me, the idea that I could be in a deep, loving relationship, but still sleep with multiple people. That's great. And at the time, I was so in NRE with this person, I was like, oh my god, this is fantastic. I love this. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't that realize turned out until, well. Yeah, until retrospect, I was like, that should have been a big red flag, that mm. it was less about the monogamy and more about this person's boundaries, this person's sense of self, this person's sense of what they want, how they can communicate, how they feel about honesty or dishonesty. Yeah, That was really the issue. So, word to the wise don't make the same yeah. mistakes that i did. <laughs> Doesn't mean <laughs> right. they're a bad person, but maybe it should give you some pause to think about. You know, just just reconsider.
1: Yeah, so in the discussion that followed after this post, you know, there was disagreement about, you know, cheating and that was the whole discussion, but something that came up that was really interesting is that some people felt that cheating was not a useful concept at all in any relationship similar to a term like virginity, that's kind of rooted in this desire for control over other people or maybe insecurity, and that in itself doesn't have value, or or at least not the value that we assign to it, whether that's moral value or just sort of like how how valuable something is, that it's kind of this cheating maybe is this sort of useless term, actually. And And the person who brought this up also argued that you do not need the concept of cheating in order to call attention to a partner's harmful or untrustworthy behavior. And I think this is such a cool point. And Mm -hmm. I think it's worth taking a moment to think about that. It reminds me a little bit of our conversation from last week with Martha Cowpey about people calling something a need when really it's a want because it's like, well, I can't get it if it's just a want. It has to be a need in order for me to even be able to ask for it or to have anyone take me seriously. Hmm. And I almost feel like this question of cheating could be a similar thing where it's like, well, is it cheating or not is maybe the less important question than is this a relationship where I feel good and I feel valued and I feel like I can trust my partner and like I'm getting my needs met and that I can be honest with my partner. Like maybe those are the questions to be asking, not does this count as cheating or not?
2: I I think that it calls back slightly to the original article that we talked about it, that essentially it's like a useless concept to talk about, that like it's it's akin to virginity or whatever. And I don't know what I think about that. I think it's, it is a word that is so steeped in our cultural zeitgeist of like that, you know, bad, you are bad if you cheat, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I had to struggle with that a lot growing up because I am a product of a cheating relationship. Like, my my dad was married and my mom and he had an affair. And so I always, like, struggled with that. It, like, I'm a bad person because I'm a product of that. And it's only mm. recently when I've started to really sort of break free of the constraints of feeling that way as an individual. So I don't know. Yeah. It's it's interesting overall just to think about that concept and, and how it can be, just the concept itself, like any concept can be destructive potentially, if not thought about from, uh, I think, a, a more nuanced perspective.
1: I think, yeah, like an interesting exercise. Because, you know, we talk a lot about how language can limit the ways that we think and feel about things. You know, like the the classic example people love to bring up is how we only have the one word love and that Mm. some other languages have several and everyone loves to go to the whole Greek thing of like, oh, they have these like seven different words for different types of love and we just have the one word of this sort of limitation of language in that way. But I also think it's an interesting exercise to look at it the other way of how might you feel differently about this thing or how might you express it differently if you didn't have a word for it that you do have? Yeah. Something yeah. like cheating. Mm. You know, what's maybe like how else might you talk about that or think about that if you didn't have this word that had all this cultural emotional attachment to it? Right? Which you you can't really avoid that with, especially with these sorts of terms. And so just kind of a fun exercise. You could do this with all sorts of Terms of just like, how would I think about or talk about this thing if I couldn't use that word? It's like, uh, what's that game? There's a game taboo? where you try to get people to, a yeah, t- taboo. taboo. Yes. It's like mm. playing a game of taboo. It's like, yeah. you can't say that word or maybe any connected, like closely connected words. How could you express that same sentiment? It's an interesting exercise.
2: So, additionally, one of our other patrons and our two-time former guest, Phoebe Phillips, explained on her blog, Polyamoring, in an article, Can You Cheat in Polyamory? That cheating is a phenomenon that occurs outside the realm of romantic relationships as well. Like, one can cheat in a game, for example. And some of our patrons actually express that same sentiment. So, Phoebe says, cheating implies... This is a quote, cheating implies being intentionally surreptitious about ignoring or outright breaking established agreements to gain an advantage for yourself or to control outcomes. It's a concept that implies there are agreements, laws, or rules in place, and that one is actively circumventing them to their own advantage. So in that way, I think, yeah, it's absolutely possible to cheat in polyamory. And so she's, she goes on to say, so what might cheating look like in polyamory? The more rules or agreements are in place, the easier it might be to cheat. But generally speaking, anytime you're withholding information from a partner that you think they would find, that they would be upset to find out, there is a good chance you might be cheating.
1: Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've heard that kind of rubric before of like, mm-hmm. if if the thing you're doing, you would feel uncomfortable or worried like th- that you would be worried if your partner knew about this then you're in that zone you're in the, the cheating zone and maybe should rethink either the communication or the action you know yeah
0: and finally we need to do a callback to our guest from our last episode martha Cowpie, who discussed trust and how it relates to infidelity in her book polyamory a clinical toolkit for therapists and their clients And I think the way that Kelpie looks at this is really interesting because she looks at the whole ecosystem of the relationship. So as in looking at, is someone lying or being less than truthful in order to avoid conflict? Does that reveal something about how the other partner shows up in conflict? So so,
2: interesting.
0: Yeah, Kelpie has what she calls lie inviting behavior. And we've talked about this before. I think Phoebe also talks about it on her blog. She has a really wonderful blog post called The Honesty Exchange, where it's basically looking at that phenomenon of it's not only about the person who made the choice in how they chose to communicate or not communicate honestly. It's also in how the other person receives that honesty. You know, that if you have a partner who blows up, or shames you, or shuts down, or becomes completely emotionally dysregulated, whenever you tell them something that's uncomfortable, when you're honest, then that means they may be more likely in the future to avoid that conflict. And it may encourage some omission of truth, or telling some half-lies, or even just straight-up lies. Hmm. And that lie-inviting behavior often means you know, that there's a lack of differentiation, as she talks about a lot in the book, that they're not able to emotionally regulate and listen and stay curious when their partner is sharing something that isn't easy to hear. So I think that is really interesting. You know, sometimes I avoid leaning into that too heavily because of course we don't want to go to the extreme of, well, you're at fault that your partner cheated on you because you made it too difficult for them to be honest. Like I don't it's it's not like we can completely swing the other way and put all of the emphasis and all the responsibility and blame on that person. However, I do appreciate this, this sense that it is an ecosystem, you know, that it's not just one person being a bad person necessarily.
1: Mm. I, yeah, I think that metaphor of the ecosystem is an interesting one to think about with things like this, because I think so many of us have been conditioned culturally to think about relationship problems legalistically, of like, mm who is guilty or not guilty, right? Of this, there's a black and white, there's only one choice or the other. And that it's like, once you're at that point, I kind of feel like the whole thing's already lost. Like once you're at the point where what matters is legalistically deciding who's right and wrong, you've kind of, you've lost the whole thing already. You're not going to win. You're not going to have a good relationship that way if that's the thing that matters. And I know that's very different from how a lot of people approach this and talk about this stuff. But this idea of an ecosystem is an, an interesting way to look at it, right that it's like you know are the lions or the antelopes the villains or the heroes? You know what I mean It's like we don't think about actual ecosystems in the world that way. it's sort of this all goes together and it like you know changes in one place affect everything else. I just think that's an interesting metaphor to look at yeah all right, so for our last section of this episode, we want to talk about some actionable takeaways right what, what can we actually do? do with this information now that we've talked about all this stuff. And there's maybe two categories of actionable takeaways. One is what to do if you're wondering if an action that you're taking or thinking about taking is cheating. And then two, what to do if you've been cheated on. So again, to go back to Phoebe Phillips, it lists some questions you can ask yourself if you're trying to determine am I cheating or would this be cheating? Question number one am I within the bounds of our established agreements with this action? Question two, if I'm not sure or if I'm using a loophole to rationalize my actions, I know a lot of you did that in step one. I've certainly done it. Am I willing to discuss it with my partner in advance to ensure that they're aware of my intentions?
2: Hmm.
1: And then question three, am I allowing my partner to make a fully informed decision about whether or not to continue dating me? That's, yeah. And that's an interesting one there, too, right? Yeah. So if you answer a solid yes to all these, then you're, you're probably not cheating. But if there's no or a, I don't know about that to any of them, then you might be. And again, even if you're saying, like, whatever, the term cheating isn't even that useful, it's still like, well, you might be in Doing something you shouldn't be doing. Zone. Uh, there's some something degree. else that needs to, yeah, exactly. Something else needs to be worked out here.
2: So, okay. If you are cheated on, if you're a person who has been cheated on, whether you're monogamous or not, there might be some shame involved with that. I think that's something that's like a cultural narrative that a lot of people have. They feel a lot of intense shame, like, how could this happen to me? What did I do? You know, internalizing it in some way. With that in mind, there's some thoughts from Esther Perel, Uh, for those who find themselves in this position. So Esther Perel wrote, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. And Perel argues in that for a more compassionate approach to this sort of what she calls an inevitable phenomenon of infidelity. And rather than framing the adulterer as the bad perpetrator and the faithful partner as the victim, which again is pathologizing or moralizing infidelity in some way, It's more helpful to acknowledge the generative possibilities of infidelity. So Perel's also wrote Mating in Captivity, a different book, and has written extensively on cheating and infidelity, also talks about it on her show, Where Should We Begin? It's a really interesting listen. Definitely listen to it. It's fascinating. And so in this book, Mating in Captivity, she suggests cultivating mystery and distance between partners in order to spark erotic excitement is something that people should be doing. And in my mind, that's like cultivating and creating autonomy between yourself and the person or people that you are with. Because, you know, if you're like with them all the time, which is hard right now because we're all in in captivity. No, we're all like in our home, potentially. It's more challenging to do that, but it is still very important. So Esther Perel says, there is nothing like the eroticized gaze of the third to challenge our domesticated perceptions of each other. Whoa. Yeah, it's
1: Whoa, like sorry. you got to sit there and think about that one for a
2: while. <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah. it's
1: fascinating.
0: And like a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show, Perel also discusses how unlikely it is that our partner is going to provide everything that we could ever want. And yet, when a partner is not providing absolutely everything that we could ever want, a lot of us are very quick to immediately look for it in others and are sometimes pressured to leave a relationship if a partner is not sexually fidelitous. And bear in mind that Perel's mostly writing this book for monogamous people Mm -hmm. and talking about traditional monogamous relationships. And yet she also straddled the line for sure of of being fairly pro-non-monogamy, but also I think trying to bring in a lot of that, that very natural, again, like that eroticized charge that comes from your partner being someone who is much more autonomous and independent from you. And hoping to encourage people to do that even in their monogamous relationships. And so what we're leading up to is Perel has some advice for weathering infidelity, which is one, accept that it will probably happen. Two, strip it of its moral power, which means, you know, don't think that your partner is this bad, terrible, morally irredeemable person for doing it. And get curious around why they did so in the first place. I think that's the most important takeaway for the non-monogamous folk. That right there is yeah. this can be an opportunity for curiosity. It doesn't need to be like super happy curiosity or super excited curiosity. But again, curiosity around like, let's say if your partner violated some kind of agreement or did the opposite of what they said that they were going to do, it's getting to the bottom of why. Yeah. Is there something going on in the ecosystem of our relationship that made it hard to uphold that agreement? Or was your partner unable to actually agree to that, but felt pressured to, or things like that? And again, getting answers to these questions can be really, really valuable. It could be everything from something that could help infuse your relationship with some actual excitement, or it could give you a more clear sense of like, oh, there's some things we need to work on here. Or it could also give you a sense of, ooh, maybe this is not the relationship for me. Mm. You know, if my and partner okay doesn't to agree... Yeah. Again, always, it's okay to break up. It is okay. We promise. Yeah. Wow.
2: Okay. That was a lot. I I don't know if we answered the question. Is it possible to cheat in non-monogamous relationships? Sure, we but did. I think yes. it, is. I, it is. I think it is. I
1: think that you two think that it is. Some I mean, people I'm, out there on, I'm kind of on board with this, like, maybe this term isn't actually serving any of us. Maybe so you're much, in. We should maybe you're talk in. about it differently.
2: Yeah. Well, what are terms? What are labels? The older I get, <laughs> is the more language? I'm like, whatever. It's just, yeah. I am who I am. And that's fine. <laughs> All righty. So for our bonus episode for patrons, we are going to discuss a little bit about whether or not cheating can exist in relationships like don't ask, don't tell relationships and relationship anarchy If we know of any other frameworks where cheating may not exist in those types of frameworks of relationships, we're going to dive a little bit into that. I'm interested to hear what you two have to say on those subjects. So this week on our Instagram, we are going to ask the question, is it possible to cheat in non-monogamous relationships? That's that question that we've been talking about this entire episode. We want to hear your answers and also your thoughts on this episode. The best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multi is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Babinetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowork and Carson Collins. The researcher for this episode is Dr. Kiana Nurse. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.